This is a production of Dermcast TV, brought to you by the Society of Dermatology PAs during our summer meeting in San Diego, California, June 2017. Can you hear me? All right. This is the Penn State fight song. Um, so I'm from Penn State. Brian thought we needed a little wake up this morning. I have to kind of fight myself up because it's early. And uh, you may have noticed from the program this morning, teaching, teachable moment, feels like soft stuff. You know, like, what the, come on. But I'm really glad that they put this topic last because in my opinion, if you know all the content from the last three days, if you could memorize every fact and then roll into a patient's room and deliver that information to them, that's great, but it's up here and they're down here. And so this idea that I wanna walk through in the next little while is how do we take what we know that's in our heads and get patients to do it? Because I think of being a clinician and kind of taking what I know and giving it to patients as a lot like being a parent. So I mentioned that I have uh, one daughter. I actually have two. They're six and they're nine and a half. Um, and of course, I was a child once. And I remember being told, maybe you were too, you look with your eyes, not with your hands, Jocelyn. And I heard that a lot. Um, but I actually think it's the reason I'm a great dermatologist, because now I look with my eyes and with my hands. Um, but I have to ask my kids sort of multiple times. And so teaching and the style of teaching is important because you can't say something just once and have it work on people. I can't tell my daughter, I want you to clean up your room. It's important that we have a clean room so we can find things. No, I ask her to do that every week, maybe every month. It's just human nature that being told something once, if you're not interested in hearing it, if you're not motivated to hear it, it's not going to sit with you. It's not going to resonate with you. And so part of our job as clinicians is to take that information that might not be interesting or seemingly important to that patient at the time and package it in a way that they become interested and engaged with it, that it's at the right level where they can understand it so that they can go out and use the cream you prescribed to use the sunscreen that you want them to use or to use the sun protective clothing that you might want them to use. It is not enough just to say it. We have to teach it. So what I want to do this morning is define what a teachable moment in clinic is. Um, we're going to talk about some of the ways that you might be able to change your practice or take some of these hints away. And certainly, we're going to do some examples. Um, and one thing that I want you to think of is I'm going to need somebody who can be an actor. So I'm going to try and role play some of this for you. And if there's anybody out there who just loves to act a little later, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand, okay? Um, so there are lots of teachable moments out there. And what I realized as I was training was sometimes my patients taught me. 
So I mentioned in one of my talks, I think it was the acne and HS talk, that if I had had three separate patients come in and ask sort of the same question about their disease, I sort of took that and added it to my little spiel. So as an example, I would have patients with hydradenitis superativa come in and say, you know what, is my immune system not working well enough? Is that why I keep getting these infections? So that gave me two opportunities. One was to dispel the myth that this was an infectious disease, and the second was to help them realize, in fact, their immune system was not underperforming, it was overperforming. And now patients kind of look at me and they're like, yeah, my immune system's overperforming. I mean, this still sucks, but I mean, it's not that my immune system is down here. It's actually, it's like exceptional. Um, and so I've, I think there's also opportunities where I have borrowed talks from other people and then I sort of tweak them as I look at my patients' reactions. So I think it's really important to take the little facial expressions or smiles or nods that you get from people and that reinforces my phraseology. Is that a word? No. Um, the phrases that I use when I'm talking to people. So um, I'll ask you in a minute for your examples, but one that I got from one of my teachers was when I talk about dry skin or eczema, I say that the skin is like a brick wall and the skin cells are the bricks and then the oil and fats between the cells are like the mortar. And so when you have eczema, your mortar is really weak or it's not enough there. And so you can imagine that brick wall just falling apart and things get in that shouldn't get in and things get out that shouldn't get out. And that's why you have eczema. Um, you know, certainly it doesn't bring into account the whole immune aspect of it. But, you know, part of what we're doing is we're trying to make it understandable. We're not trying to give like a, a dissertation on eczema to each patient. We just need to give them enough that they feel like they can act on it. Um, I mentioned my one about hydradenitis. Does anybody have any talks or like phrases that they like to use that you want to share? Don't be shy. I'm sure it's wonderful. Yeah. I got this from Hillary Baldwin. Um, acne is bugs, plugs, redness, and oil. Bugs. So acne is bugs, plugs, redness, and oil. That's pretty good. I mean, to have words that rhyme sometimes really uh, cements it in people's brains. When, so we're gonna talk about this in a little while. We want people to remember things. We want them to leave the office and actually retain information and using rhyming words or alliteration, which is where the words begin with the same letter, um, that is actually very reinforcing, and handouts. And we'll talk about helpful handouts in a little while. Any other really helpful phrases? That was a good one, thank you. Yeah. That's really excellent because I use, try and get that same analogy across and I'll say, you know what, you have um, one or two of these AKs. If you had a hundred of them, you know, and usually they can't even imagine a hundred. If you had a hundred of them, maybe one or two of them could turn into squamous cell. Um, but I really like the oak tree and acorn. That's really helpful. Any others that people want to throw out? Yeah. Mm -hmm. No rubbing, not hot water, yada, yada, yada. But I have a patient who 
Mm. And, and some people do respond. So the, the take home point here is to try and give people a sense of you can make this change now or later on, you know, unfortunately I'm going to be taking cancers off of you. And the challenge is that we know that especially younger people, they think they are immortal, that they are never going to get skin cancer. <sighs> Me? No way. I'm too pretty. And the problem is that they, do, they, they will not change their behavior, but one phrasing that sometimes does change that behavior is if you scare them with wrinkles. So the cosmetic side of UV damage. Yeah, hand up. You say wrinkles first, cancer second, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm really glad that both of you raised that because I need that actor person later on because there's a way that we can sort of talk to patients and it's a bit more question asking than telling. And so one thing that I really want to point out is that this whole session, this whole meeting has been a lot of telling that we think of teaching as the same as talking at people. And sometimes teaching is not effective that way. If it was, you would leave here, you would remember every single thing that every person said. But one of the things I'm gonna tell you in a second is that there are lots of things that distract us from remembering things. It's I'm too cold in this conference room, it's I have other things going on in my life, it's that cream you're talking about is too expensive. So telling does not equal doing or learning for a lot of different reasons. All right, so that's really the point that I wanted to make here, which was if just delivering content, saying it, spewing it out into the world was 100% effective, then lectures like this would be perfect, parenting would be so much easier, and we wouldn't need any other tricks but it's not that efficient. Um, and so what we need to do is couple the right content for that person, the content that they're ready to hear, and then deliver it in a way that engages them, that sometimes can be fun. And so some of the teachers here who are gonna get the highest rating scales, it might not be that their content was any better or even more applicable to what you do. It's sometimes that they're the most fun. And that's just the way that teaching is. And so we want to try and make this something that is important to patients, but they don't feel like they're being lectured at. Um, and we'll go over a couple different ways um, to do that. So I just made up a little mnemonic that helps me to remember whenever I'm giving a talk to a patient or even in front of an audience, I try and do a couple of different things. One is I try and make it significant to them. I want to make it important. I want to make sure that as I'm delivering it, I have their attention. 
then I need to be organized. And I'm gonna go over this in just a second. And then we need to remember that if we can make something simple, then it's probably going to be a little bit easier to retain. And it means we've probably gotten down to the most important concept. So some of the hardest talks for me to give are the ones that are 15 minutes. I only have 15 minutes and I really have to think about what is the most important thing that I wanna leave an audience with. In a clinic room, we have like two minutes while we're doing other things during their skin check. So we really need to know what is the most pertinent message for that patient. Because if I'm giving the same spiel to every patient, it's probably not gonna be effective for a lot of them because they're maybe already doing it or they're not even ready to conceive of doing that intervention. So we need to know where the patient is. So significance is keeping their attention and making it practical. I'm gonna go over the O in just a second. So starting at their level, I want you to think of the brain and sort of our learning process as a tree. So if I want to teach somebody about sunscreen, I'm gonna start with big basic concepts and that's really the trunk of the tree. And I said I would teach you something about learning theory. So just as a, an aside, this is cognitive learning theory. It says that the human brain organizes things into baskets, large concepts, and then adding details. So I'm sure that when you were in school and you were studying and you were learning about a new antifungal drug, you would go into the part of your brain where you stored antifungal drugs you would think about what you already knew about antifungal drugs, and then you would add this new one in there, and you would create relationships between this new drug and the drugs that you already knew about. You would make comparisons, contrast between the safety profile and the mechanism of action. We need to try and do this for our patients, where we need to say, all right, what's your first name? Shay. Shay, I wanna try and talk to you about some sun protection um, options. So we start with the broad concept of sun protection. There's a couple different types of sun protection. You could avoid the sun and UV. We could use sunscreen or we could use sun protective clothing. So now I've given her under the heading of sun protection three different options. Does one of those appeal more to you? Sunscreen, okay. So with sunscreen, we wanna try and make sure that you get a sunscreen of maybe 30 or 50. There is some research that people under apply, so you might wanna go with a higher number if you think you put on a thin layer. So I didn't start with the message, buy an SPF 50 or higher because thin layers cause a problem. We started with the main concept and then added on from there because that's how our brains work. Large concepts, then add details. You have a skin disease called eczema. It is not the same as psoriasis, and it's more than just dry skin. It is caused by. So you give the main concept, and then you move on to the details. So this is why gaining people's attention is so important. So this is research, again, from uh, neuroscience related to how people remember things. So when we are talking to our patients, when I am giving you this talk, that noise, that sound, my appearance, this is all sensory input. You are sensory input to your patients. If they're on their phone like this, 
you don't have their attention. If their kid is running around the room or they're stressed about something inside their head and you get the sense they're just not engaged, you are a sensory input that goes in one ear, out the other. It is not retained in any kind of short-term memory. We only remember sounds, smells, and things that we see if we put our attention onto it. So you need to make sure you have your patient's attention, otherwise your words are not going to be heard. So get their attention, and then you want to try and have them rehearse it or be able to go back to that material again and again. So this is where handouts are really helpful. They can repeat that information back to themselves without you being there. Sometimes we'll use what's called a teach back. Has anybody heard of a teach back? A couple people. So this is where I might be teaching Shay about sun protection. I say, Shay, I just want to make sure that you, I, so I don't put it on them, I want to make sure that I got the information across to you. Can you just tell me what you just heard me say? So that way if she says, um, I'm sorry, I was not thinking about what you were saying. Now I realize, okay, I, I need to do something different. I need to gain her attention again or deliver it in a different way. If she says, you know what, I really didn't understand it. I need to think about maybe the words that I'm using if they are too big. We're gonna talk about reading comprehension and sort of where people's educational level puts them. The big thing here is, without it being important or having somebody's attention because they perceive it's important, your words are lost. So get their attention and keep it. Repeat and clarify if you need to. So as an example, this is a young woman with the eczema and she comes in and her skin is not obviously doing very well. And you look back in the chart and you've given her ultra potent topical steroids for her body. You've given her low to medium strength steroids for her face. You've given her topical calcineurin inhibitors um, for some of the areas of her face and neck. You're like, I've given her all the right things. I have given her the talk about eczema. And she's still coming in saying, you know what, I'm not happy. It's not working for me. So then we need to ask, okay. So sometimes I just get really humble and I'm just broken and I need to just ask the patient, what am I not giving you? Like, just help me understand like what's not right. So if we can ask our patients that, again, we're getting beyond content. We're getting beyond the textbook says eczema plus steroids equals cure. For this patient, when we talk to her, she says, you know what, the, the grease that you gave me, that ointment, it makes my skin look shiny. And then I know that people can see it on my skin a lot more easily. So already, she's already not thinking about the fact that people see stuff on her skin because it's bright red. She's focused on the shine from the grease and the ointment and the cream. Well, you know what? If she's not gonna use something because of the shine that it has, I need to change that. I can change that. I need to tell her it might sting more because it's gonna be a lotion or a foam or a gel or some other combination of things. But as a teenager, she is okay making that decision. So we need to understand the motivation. So this, her skin is um, too shiny when she uses the greases. Other things that could happen. Who's got an example of where you thought you did all the right things, but then it was some other like systematic thing that was going wrong? Something outside of you picked the right treatment and it's the right disease. Yeah. Well, I used it and it went away, so I stopped using it. 
Yes. So if, if I don't tell people, so eczema is like a roller coaster, and you're going to have good times and bad times. So we actually created a handout where there's like a red light, a yellow light, and a green light. And then we put pictures of inflamed skin and uninflamed skin. And we tell people, when your skin looks like this, it's inflamed, use your steroid. When your skin looks like this, it is not inflamed, but use a moisturizer. So one of the things that um, I'm always trying to get our eczema patients to realize is you will always be putting something on your skin. It's just that sometimes it's going to be a steroid and sometimes it's going to be a moisturizer. So yeah, sometimes it's the, the way of using the cream or thinking about using a cream. How about other things? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, embarrassment is a huge barrier. Um, and so sometimes, you know, I just have to say, is there anything about this treatment that you think is going to be an issue for you? Um, anything. And that would be something where maybe with future teenagers, I'd be you know, trying to remind myself, like there's still sometimes teenagers who've never had to take a pill. Now you can put everything into a dissolvable strip that you put on the top of your mouth from antihistamines to, you know, anti-constipation medication. So there are some kids who've never had to swallow a pill. Um, I've had some people who, you know, the parents just either don't have the money and don't pick up the medication. They don't want to admit that. They try and use as little as possible, like literally a pea-sized amount to rub on their whole arm. We need to know about that. So I ask patients, if you ever get to the pharmacy and something seems too expensive, please call me and let me know. There's almost always an, alter an alternative. We need to make this conversation about treatment sort of a safe and open place. Because again, knowing the right disease and just being able to prescribe the right treatment doesn't mean it's actually going to help people. Um, uh, so one of the other things, all these examples are things that have actually happened to me. So uh, this patient came in. And uh, you know, using all our senses as dermatologists, I walk in the room and you can just smell the bacteria in the room. And like teenagehood is not a good time to smell different than other people. Um, so I was kind of surprised that you know she had sort of an odor, and we know that that's probably just driving her eczema because of the colonization of bacteria on the surface of her skin. So we need to get that out of the way so her eczema can get better. So you know, I'm I'm asking so. What, it, what are you doing for your eczema right now? Tell me about your bathing routine. And she said, you know what? I'm not bathing because the water stings when it hits my skin. Um, so I just stopped. You know, and it's important to her. She wants her eczema better, and she doesn't want to smell, but she doesn't like the fact that it's uncomfortable. So you know, again, just being able to raise that as a conversation and to recognize that there are things that are on the patient's side that we need to know about so that we can effectively teach that patient. Um, for some of my patients with eczema, putting a little bit of like baking soda in the water can be really helpful. Just changing the temperature of the water. Some people use oils. Um, but there are definitely ways around that. So repetition. 
It's important to, again, make the talk pertinent to that patient. The problem solving really needs to be pertinent to that patient. We need to keep our message organized and at the level of that patient and just to make the message simple and to keep their attention throughout the appointment. So I think the handout gives the answers away, but I don't see a lot of people with the handout. So, 30 minutes from now, how much of what I said are you going to remember? Shout out a number. You guys are a little better than that, higher than 50%. It's 60%. After a day, tomorrow, how much are you going to remember from anything we say today? 40. In one week. Oh, no. 10%. So it's an exponential decrease over time. So it's called the forgetting curve. Essentially, you start out pretty high, you remember a lot of what you were just exposed to. But over time, it's just like a slide and it just dips down. What we can do is we can interrupt that forgetting curve for our patients. Again, we're not gonna see them every month to reinforce, except for maybe with isotretinoin, we're not gonna see those patients very often. In my area, we have a lot of trouble with access. I can't see my patients every three or four months for a skin check if they don't really need it. I can't see them every three or four months for their eczema and psoriasis checks unless they really need it because I need to get the new patients in. So handouts are really important. And one thing I would caution you against is going to Google and saying eczema handout PDF and just printing it off because I'm gonna show you an example of a psoriasis handout in a minute, and we're gonna tear it apart, okay? They're not always written the way we need them to. And a lot of it is really around reading comprehension and health-related reading comprehension. I remember sitting down and reading my first scientific article, and I felt like an idiot. It took me like six hours to read this thing because the way that a lot of stuff is written in healthcare is it's dense and there's huge words and it's just hard. And that is not the way that our patients are used to reading. So we need to make it a little bit easier for them. We need to translate it. And so a driver's manual, just as an example, so that way you sort of know what you're aiming for. What grade level of reading comprehension do you think a driver's manual is written at? Not third. Sixth, so fifth was pretty close. Okay. All right. Uh, frozen dinner. Instructions on how to make a frozen dinner. No, higher. This is why they taste so bad, because people can't cook them right. <laughs> Eighth grade. Eighth grade. And really what we're aiming for in our handouts is about sixth grade. Sixth grade reading comprehension. So reading comprehension is very different than actually just being able to, the literacy or being able to read. We need people to be able to read the word but also understand what is being written. So eighth grade for a frozen dinner. How about an aspirin bottle? Close. So she said 11th grade, it's 10th. So we use handouts for a couple of things. One are, we just talked about that forgetting curve. There are limits to our memory, so we need to overcome it. Two, choice overload. 
Handouts can help us because sometimes we're talking to our patients and we say, you know what, you need a moisturizer. Shay needs some sunscreen. I say, Shay, I would love for you to go to the store and buy some sunscreen. And because I don't have any relationships with companies, I'm not going to recommend any to you. I just want you to get an SPF of, say, 50, okay? Shay goes to Walmart. Literally, it's a quarter acre of sunscreen. And she looks at the aisle and she says, Oh, heck no. And she leaves. She leaves without sunscreen. That is called choice overload. They've done lots of studies on this in cognitive psychology. Um, and for example, they could put out a sample bar of like 20 different jams and jellies. People would walk up to the bar, they'd look at it, they'd be completely overwhelmed by the choices and they would walk away. Whereas the people who put out samples will typically put out around five because that's essentially the limit of where humans can make their decisions. More than that, they become overwhelmed by the choice and they walk away. So when we send our patients to the store and we say, get a moisturizer, get a sunscreen, get an acne wash, they look at this quarter acre of stuff and they are overwhelmed. So what we don't wanna do is necessarily have conflicts of interest and to say, you know what, this is the only good sunscreen out there, go get it. There are usually many good choices. Some of them are gels, some of them are sprays, some of them have high numbers, some have low numbers. I like to give my patients a little bit of choice to find the one that works for them and the right price. Moisturizers as well. I'll say, I want you to get something in a tub. Here are some examples. So I will give them three to five brand examples and I'll say, you know what? Oftentimes the store brand, the generic that's right next to it, you can buy that if you want to. So I've now diminished the number of choices by giving them a few examples, but I don't routinely recommend just one company. So when you go to the store to get your medicated wash, I want you to make sure you get something with benzoyl peroxide. I write down active ingredient benzoyl peroxide because again, they're not gonna remember it. We have to write it down and I might give them a few brand names. So we're using handouts because our memories aren't perfect. We need to sometimes give people choices to overcome choice overload, but we also need those handouts to be helpful. So we need people to be able to read them. I was sitting in the back of the room yesterday and I looked up at the screen at the presentation. I was like, oh my God, I've gone blind because I, <laughs> I couldn't read it. Um, and it, of course I didn't have my glasses on, but even when I put my glasses on, it was sort of just like the play of the font made it just a little bit harder to read. So I pretty much always use Arial or Calibri as my fonts, both in talks or in handouts. They are simple. They don't have a lot of extra little curly cues and little dips at the tops of the letters. So using a font that's about 12 and using a more simple font are usually more productive. The goal of your handout is not to be pretty. That would be nice. The goal is for it to be functional, to support that patient in their patient care. There are parts of it you can make pretty, but the font doesn't need to be pretty. It needs to be readable. Also, chunking information. A PowerPoint presentation, if you've ever seen a slide that's just covered in words, my brain turns off. I'm not gonna look at that, which is why for most of my slides, I try and give very short sentences or phrases. This is the same thing that we need to do with our patients. They're not gonna sit there and necessarily read a whole paragraph. We wanna chunk the information, meaning powerful short phrases, make it as simple and powerful as you can, and use bullets. 
and then also limit three-syllable and four-syllable words. Again, we're trying to keep it at a reading level about fifth or sixth grade. And at the bottom of the slide here, there's this test called a closed test, which if you can delete every fifth word, then, and it's still understandable, then it's appropriate. But if you can't delete every fifth word and make it understandable, it's not at the right level. Um, and try and use the words you and your. Your eczema, your psoriasis, your skin would benefit from sun protection. It really makes it easier for the patient to sort of put themselves and connect themselves to that information rather than it makes sense to use sun protection. That's like very impersonal. It's hard for patients to feel that that is significant or related to them. All right, so we're gonna practice. This is a handout that I just Googled psoriasis patient handout PDF, and this is what I got. So I want you to take a look at it. Tell me what you would change. So read it for about 15 seconds and then I'll ask you. Without even reading it, I could just say it has to be shorter because I don't even want to read it. So you don't want to read it, it seems too long. <laughs> if you don't want to read it, your patient's definitely not going to want to read it. Right. Bullets would be really helpful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yes, people skim. Um, so there's a style of presentation called assertion evidence, which I like to use in my PowerPoints, but you could use for patient handouts as well, which is you make an assertion, you make a statement. Psoriasis is a chronic disease caused by the immune system, period. Under that, you could put bullets, which is studies have shown that psoriasis is caused by an overactive immune system. Psoriasis often lasts for most of people's lives. These are the evidence behind that assertion, so that's one way to do it. What else don't you like? So we think the reading level is too high. What kind of words do we want to use? How many syllables? One or two. I feel like this was written for somebody who might be a college graduate. Somebody who's pretty well read. There's a lot of three syllable words. There's a lot of fancy grammar with commas in the middle of sentences. That's not really where we're writing it. I would write this at the level of where I think my fourth or fifth grade daughter could read it and understand it. That is our goal. All right. This is a handout on what to look for to screen for melanoma, to look at pigmented lesions. What would you change? Oh my gosh, yeah, where are the pictures, right? So this is an example of, if I was gonna try and teach you to do an excision and I talked you through it, would that be the way to teach how to do an excision? No. We need to have a specimen in front of us. We at least need some model to simulate on because an excision is a motor learning skill. This is a visual learning skill. We can't use words to talk through that. Words are fine, but we need pictures. So this handout is much more effective. This is actually from the AAD website because it has the words, 
as well as a very good visual example. So we've talked a lot about how to frame the content, how to choose the content, how to use the right words. But it's critically important, that aspect of significance. So we need to know where that patient is, where that girl with the eczema is. We need our patients to sort of feel comfortable to disclose, I think that my eczema comes from when I lived in a house, my family didn't have a lot of money, and it was never really very clean, so I wonder if that's why I have eczema now. You know what, the chance of that is incredibly low, but if we don't allow that patient to tell us their ideas about why they have a disease, we will always have that as sort of a barrier, like a stopping block. Like they might not use the treatment because they're always washing their skin seven times a day because they've always felt sort of dirty since then, our HS patients. And this happens, I think, a lot. People come in with ideas about how to use treatments. Uh, they might say, you know what, I would love to be able to use some of the essential oils that I have on my eczema. So my immediate concern is, oh my gosh, I hope you don't become allergic to the 17 essential oils that might, you might be using on your eczema. So I feel like I just want to educate the person about that risk, but if I immediately nix all that, I've sort of stepped on our therapeutic relationship because every person feels they are their own doctor. This is a very important part of that communication with our patients. So we've already talked to this young woman and connected with her. This, this is a challenge, right? So I live in central Pennsylvania, believe it or not, we do have sunshine there. Um, and we have a lot, a lot of farmers and people who just love to be outside. And lots of people say, you know what? I tan super easily. I never burn. Oh. That's, it's it just, oh. And, and what I don't, what I don't want to have happen for any of us is that we walk in and we see that super tan person and we're like, oh, I'm just not going to make an impact on that person. And we don't even try. Because we all know that these people are super well-versed at sort of putting off the sun protection with that idea of, well, I don't burn, so why would I need sun protection? Or they have ways around it. Um, so what I want to let you know about is this is where it's a, a tool called behavioral negotiated interviewing. And we've borrowed it in dermatology from people who uh, work on alcohol cessation and tobacco cessation. So addictive behaviors, just like tanning can be sometimes. And really, it's question asking. It is purposeful question asking that gets us information, but also, in a way, gets the patient thinking about why they do something and how willing they might be to change it and what they could do to change it. So this is a very big departure from, I think, what a lot of us are used to doing, which is the telling the just spewing of my sun protection talk of, you know what, the risk of you getting basal cell is 50% higher because of your tanning. You already have a family history of basal cell carcinoma because I know your family. Why are you doing this? Well, because I'm young and I'm healthy. I'm never going to get cancer. Why would I? So behavioral negotiated interview. First, what you want to do is connect with the patient. You ask about 
sort of an assessment. Where are you? How ready are you to stop smoking? How ready are you to cut back on alcohol? How are you getting your sun damage, your UV exposure? And then you want to get them talking. So you're not immediately admonishing them. You want them to tell you, why do you do this? What are the good things about it? And then you want to get them to tell you what the bad things are about it. And then you want to share some of what you know about the research, the literature, and assess where they are based on that about maybe making a change. And the change to be made comes from them. It is their suggestion. And a lot of this is cheerleading. It's like, great, yes, I'm so glad you knew about the fact that tanning causes skin cancer. I'm so glad that you think sunscreen could be a really effective way. So we're going to try this. So this is where I need somebody who can be a little bit, not overly dramatic, I don't want you to make it too hard on me, um, but realistic, pretending to be this guy or girl. Who wants to do it? All right, come on. We're going to sit at the table, so that way we both have mics. What's your name? This is my lovely assistant, Christina. Let's give her a round of applause. All right, so Christina, you're going to pretend to be a very tanned lady coming in to see me for a skin check, okay? Okay. All right. So Christina, thanks for coming in today. Why don't you pull the mic a little closer? Okay. <laughs> um, so I, I like to do with all of my patients, I just kind of like to get a sense of where they are with their sun protection. So this is where I'm assessing. Um, so where do you get your UV exposure? I, I, I'm outside all the time. I do all kinds of outdoor activities. And, you know, I like to have a base tan before I do that, so sometimes I'll go to the tanning bed and mm -hmm. do that first. Okay. So it sounds like you're outside a lot. What sort of activities are you doing outside? Hiking, biking, tennis. I play a lot of tennis outside. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I'm in shorts and um, T-shirt and that kind of thing. And occasionally I'll go to the beach, but usually I'm just a, I'm an outdoors kind of person. Got it, got it. So it sounds like you're busy outdoors, you are getting some sun exposure. Are you using any kind of sun protection? No, I, I, I don't. I don't need to. I tan. I tan really well. I never burn. Mm -hmm. I've been doing it for years. <laughs> okay. Um, so what do you think some of the kind of positive aspects of what you're doing in terms of being outside and, you know, just getting kind of tan, but not necessarily using a lot of protection? Um, well, I like the way my skin looks better when mm -hmm. it's tan. Like, mm -hmm. if I'm pale, I hate the way my skin looks. It just doesn't look right. I'm just so used to having a nice tan all the time. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, they say vitamin D is really good for you, so I'm definitely getting all my vitamin D. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And mine, too. Um, <laughs> so... Can you think of any, you know, maybe downsides of being outside, getting the UV and the sun that you're getting, but without some of the protection? I suppose I, had a, I, I might have more wrinkles than some of my friends do that don't get as much sun exposure, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but otherwise, I think, you know, I, you know, again, I don't burn, so I'm not worried about skin cancer. Mm -hmm. 
Well, and I, I think I see both your mom and dad for skin checks, and they've had a basal cell, each of them actually more than one. So mm -hmm. do, you, do you know of any potentially downsides of what you're doing now and you know, taking that into account? Yeah, I guess maybe when I'm older that might be a problem. Mm -hmm. But right now I'm not worried about it. Okay. Um, so I just wanted to share a little bit of the, in, the research, the stuff that you know, I think about a lot of the times, and I think it's maybe kind of important for you to hear about too. Um, so I completely agree with you, being outside is, is really, really important. And I also agree with you that the sun can cause wrinkles to be worse. Um, so the other thing that I was trying to help remind you of is that the sun and the UV can also cause skin cancer. Um, so are there any things that you think you could do to still be outside, do the things you want to do, and get the tan that I think you said you liked in your skin, but also maybe take into account your concern about the wrinkles and you know, your family history of the skin cancer? Yeah. I guess I could try putting on a little sunscreen every once in a while. Okay, so on a scale from one to 10, mm -hmm. how likely do you think you would be to use a sunscreen? Maybe a four. So getting people to commit to a number is really important because a four is crap. Um, we, really, we really need like a nine or a 10. So getting a four out of 10 means that that is really not a good solution, that she's gonna go home and be like, um, All right, so, so Christina, four out of 10, uh, you know, I'm just a little, it doesn't sound like you're really that interested in sunscreen. So I just want to offer some other research that we know about, which is that um, some protective clothing can be a really nice option. You don't have to reapply it. You know, you can put on a shirt when you're gardening, wear that same shirt for hours, and it protects your skin the whole time. Um, but I also kind of want to offer some people who really like to have a tan in their skin worry that if by using sunscreen, they're not going to have that color. Um, but I think we could get you the color in other ways. Do you know of any other ways to get color in your skin? Um, I guess I could do some self-tanning. Okay, so um, keeping in mind that you could get some self-tanner on your skin, how likely do you think you would be on a scale from one to 10 to use a self-tanner? I think I'd be pretty likely to use a self-tanner. All right, give me a I number, like Christina. A, like a seven or an eight? Seven maybe? or eight, I love eight. Let's go okay. with eight. Um, <laughs> so I think we could use a self-tanner. Now, thinking back to that sunscreen wasn't maybe your best option, is there any other option you think you'd like to try? I think I could use some, some sun-protective clothing. I could probably wear a, a light shirt um, when I'm playing tennis. Great. That cover my arms. Great, yeah, and we have some catalogs, so I'm gonna give you a couple different catalogs. There are some other companies besides the ones that we have that would be a great option. So I would, when I see you back for your next skin check, I'm gonna ask you about how you're doing. We'll take a look to see how that self-tanner's doing, still getting you the color that is important to you, um, but also I'll ask you about the sun protective clothing, and you can always give me a call in between if you have any questions. Okay. All right, thank you, Christina. All right, so at the beginning of that conversation, I tell her, I always want to assess my patients and how much UV exposure they're getting, how much damage they're getting. One other way that I sometimes phrase that is I'll say, in the last 12 months, how many sunburns did you get? It's not, did you get sunburned? What's wrong with that phrasing? People don't wanna say yes to it. They're afraid you're gonna beat them up. So the question when you ask is, how many did you get? It implies that there's a safety 
in me asking and you replying, I got two sunburns. You know what, if they say they got two sunburns, I'll say, well, tell me about that. Where were you? What were you doing? Oh, I went to my son's baseball game. I didn't realize I was going to be there so long. OK, great. So what could we do? I have only really asked questions so far. What could we do to try and help prevent that sunburn? Well, I guess I could put a bottle of sunscreen you know, in my purse or in my car. Yes, I really love that. Let's do that. How likely would you be to do that on a scale from 1 to 10? And again, it's always a question-asking conversation. If we tell people it might not be the right solution, they have to come up with their own solution. Behavioral negotiated interviewing. All right. And then this is, I think, a really important phenomenon. It, it's sort of a little bit disconnected from the rest of the talk, but I really wanted to make sure that I shared it with you because the way that we frame information to people, the way we give them numbers, is actually very powerful. Um, we go to the store and we buy clothes that are 25% off. It's a discount, right? We don't go to the store and buy clothes. It's 75% of what you would have paid before. We interpret those two numbers very differently. And it's the same for our patients when it comes to risks and benefits in healthcare. So the example that I put up here is related to the AKs, the acorn and the oak tree, um, that I tell my patients, you know, for most of these really small, pretty flat lesions, there's a 99% chance it's not going to turn into skin cancer. People are more likely to not perceive the need to treat an AK if I phrase it like that. But I have to acknowledge that I'm being a bit paternalistic if I phrase it that way that I am pushing people towards a certain goal. And I think it's just important for all of us to realize that. We do the same thing by saying, you know what, these AKs have like a 1% or 2% chance of becoming skin cancer. Same numbers, flipped, 99 versus 1%. But people are more likely to hear risk of cancer and perceive it negatively and choose therapy. So we are not rational. We can't take one phrase and react exactly the same way in, the, in terms of being the opposite numbers. It's 25% off versus 75% off of what it was. 99% not going to turn into cancer, 1% that it will. And so I give people both phrases when I talk to them. Yeah, this is a 99% chance it won't turn into something. That means that there's a 1% chance that it could. What would you like to do about your AKs today? Same thing with, uh, we'll say, isotretinoin. Um, you know what, if you finish this drug and we get enough into your body, there is an 80% chance you will not need a second course. That means there's a 20% chance you might need a second course, but we'll kind of take that as it comes. So I have just kind of decided that for me, I need to be aware of the power of how I phrase things. Cure rates. There is a 99% chance that this Mohs surgery will cure this lesion. There's a 1% chance it could come back. But I think that's better than a typical excision, which has a 95% cure rate and a 5% chance of recurrence. So to wrap it up, if you leave with nothing else, 
I think that the behavioral negotiated interview has really changed the way that I talk to my patients, especially about sunscreen, but certainly with a lot of things, like the young woman I showed with the eczema and sort of a lot of her challenges you know, about how to do this and could she make it work. Those are the, exactly the right patients. And just remember, it's a lot of question asking. I had psychologists teaching this to me, and I just must be really tough because Honestly, I do. I just love to talk at people. So it took me a lot of practicing to feel like I was not doing the talking. And so if it's uncomfortable, please know that that's very common. But if you are connecting and assessing, if you are asking them about the pros and cons, if you are then teaching them a little something and then letting them choose their solutions, I think you'll find that it can be really effective. Um, recognize the power of how you say things in terms of that choice framing. And then remember whenever you might have the opportunity to do teaching, whether it's in a venue like this or in your clinic, you want to connect with that person and minimize distractions, whether it's the phone, it's the kids, it's maybe they're just having a really bad day and you need to talk to them on another day. Keep your message organized. Start with big kind of foundational concepts Add details from there. Remember, it is not a dissertation. You just need to get the big points across. And with handouts, use them. Remember that forgetting curve. You're only going to remember 10% of what you heard this weekend in a week. Um, and keep your uh, handouts at a sixth grade level with uh, fonts and sizing that people can read. And for a lot of what we do, we're talking about changes in skin color or shapes or colors. Um, and so having some images in your handouts can really add to that um, ad adherence and sort of the patient understanding what you're trying to get across. All right, evaluation time. Keypads are located at the end of the table. Please take one and pass it down. We're gonna go ahead and redo the first uh, section there. How useful will this session be in your practice? All right, I have to be Dr. Rosen here for a second. Like, seriously, a six. So useful. Eight, yes! As a result of this program, do you intend to change your patient care? Do we have questions? What, no questions? Does anybody want to raise their hands and ask a question? Old school, yes ma'am. I think this, to get your spiel going according to the population and 
Yeah. So she brings up a very good point, which is your spiel is going to be different for an 18-year-old or a 40-year-old or a 60-year-old. But I, I, I completely agree with you that sometimes we get those 60-year-olds who come in and say, oh, all the damage was done. Well, luckily, we do have the research that we can fall back on that no matter when in your life you make a change for sun protection, it does decrease your risk of skin cancer. And you make the other great point that we can help people understand, which is we are more likely to live into our 90s than any other generation of people. So you are definitely not going to want to deal with skin cancer at 90 any more than you want to deal with it at 65. So what sun, question asking, what sun protective measures do you think would work with your lifestyle? Um, so yeah, absolutely. Any age making a sun protective change has to work for them. All right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It doesn't support what your, your stuff shows, and they're firmly entrenched in a belief that it's different. Yeah, so the situation here, I think, is a pretty common one. We have a diagnosis of tumid lupus. We know that that is a condition that is very photosensitive. Um, the patient also went to a naturopath who told her that because of some tests he ran in a box in his office, that she is gluten intolerant. Um, and that is the cause of her tumid lupus. So the challenge is that with our knowledge as providers, it's sort of different than what she's received from a naturopath. And that can very quickly turn into a very positional argument I know I'm right, he's super wrong. And the problem is that she may identify with what this other provider is saying, and then you've lost the opportunity. So I phrase this as the research that I know about. I'm putting it on the research. It's not about me, it's not about him. It's here's the research that I know about tumid lupus, that it really can be very sensitive to the sun and comes out very quickly. Uh, with sun exposure. I haven't really seen anything in the research about gluten insensitivity. I'm really glad that you're feeling better. My only concerns are that this change in your diet um, might have you feeling better, and that's great. It might not help your tumid lupus, though, so I really want to stay on top of that. So you're still expressing concern. You're expressing some amount of, I don't have research to show that this is going to help. Um, and I also have a concern that making this change to this diet can be really expensive. And so if the gluten is not the cause of your tumid lupus, um, we might be making a change that in the long run is, is not going to be real helpful. So I wonder if we could also do some of this UV protection and you know, how does, that, how does that resonate with you? So this would maybe be an, an, a point in the conversation to get the patient be able to say, you know, based on what she's heard from one provider and what she's hearing from you, how do those two things reconcile in her head? And to recognize that for a lot of our patients, we have more than one opportunity to have this conversation. 
we have many opportunities to have the conversation about uh, sun protection and to make little tweaks and reinforcements over time that we don't need to change her mind in one visit. It'd be nice if we could save her money and just have her use sunscreen, but to recognize that sometimes this is a conversation that has to be had over a couple different visits. Great. And Dr. Rosen's up next. Thank you. This has been a production of Dermcast TV, brought to you by the Society of Dermatology PAs, recorded live during our summer 2017 meeting in San Diego, California.